It's officially DC festival season, and we're super excited about this one coming up on May 18th. Africa on the Avenue is a celebration of the vibrant African immigrant community along Georgia Avenue Northwest. There's going to be interactive art installations, fashion shows, music, food, and local business stands. This one-day festival, organized by District Bridges Lower Georgia Avenue Main Street Program, truly has something for everyone. So I'll see you there on May 18th. Go to districtbridges.org to learn more. Today on CityCast DC, DC is suing a bunch of landlords over a program that may be costing you money. Plus, remember when we talked last week about the FBI moving to Maryland? Well, things have taken a turn for the much, much, much more complicated. And why are climate protesters targeting the National Gallery of Art? I'm here with CityCast's Priyanka Tilvey and The Washington Post's Justin William Moyer. And after that, stay right here. Our CEO, David Plotz, will be joining us for a conversation sponsored by Urban Pace about Pasha Homes, a flashy new development right by the Fort Totten metro stop. You don't want to miss it. Today is Friday, November 17th. I'm Michael Schaefer, and here's what DC is talking about. All right, for you new listeners joining us, CityCast DC is the daily podcast that keeps you up to speed on everything happening in DC, the controversies, the big and little news, the best and worst restaurants, what to do around town in the dark of winter. And in today's Friday News Roundup, we are starting off with this big landlord lawsuit. Justin, you reported on this in the Post when it dropped earlier this month. The details of the suit filed by the DC Attorney General are pretty outrageous. It's about a program or an algorithm called Real page. Can you uh, explain what's in the suit, what the allegations are? Sure. So uh, ever busy D.C. Attorney General Brian Schwab has decided to sue the company behind this algorithm called RealPage. And basically what this uh, algorithm does is collects data from landlords in different parts of the country. And it makes, I guess what the company would say would be recommendations for rent rental prices. But Brian Schwab is going to call this a cartel. He's going to say that landlords enter into the system, they use it all together, they agree to set prices according to you know what the algorithm suggests. These suggestions aren't really suggestions. The result is a higher rent for everyone in DC who lives in you know an apartment building of a certain size or an apartment building that uses this software. What kind of apartment buildings are we talking about? We're talking about a lot of apartment buildings, according to the D.C. Attorney General. This is software is uh, very widely used in D.C. The AG says uh, more than 50,000 units in the district are affected. Rents are artificially inflated, I believe, up to 7%. And in some cases, landlords are incentivized to leave units empty. That is to rent fewer units for a higher price rather than get what the industry calls heads in beds. So this is frustrating. Our city's in an affordable housing crisis. You know, advocates would say, this is not a good way to control your housing stock. What do the landlords or their representatives say? Well, the landlords are conspicuously silent, or maybe I should just say silent. (laughs) I reached out to an advocacy group that did not reply. And the folks behind RealPage they deny these allegations. They're looking at similar litigation all around the country. They say this is a meritless lawsuit. 
And ultimately, I mean, this pushes up rent for all of us, even if we're not living in buildings that these landlords are specifically in charge of, right? Right. You know, I learned in school that, you know, when supply exceeds demand, the price is is supposed to come down. (laughs) This software seems to sort of short circuit that sort of classical economic uh, analysis. And as a result, we all may be paying more, or at least many of us in the D.C. region may be paying more. Yeah, the whole thing about keeping the apartments empty feels particularly sinister. (laughs) Yes. And I mean, this is what we've heard from advocates throughout the pandemic. There's affordable housing crisis. You know, Mayor Bowser's trying to find ways to build more or or saying she's trying to find ways to build more. We have our voucher system. And uh, yeah, it's it's a bit maddening to know that there are empty rooms in the district that people could live in today that, you know, because of an algorithm allegedly remain empty, remain without people in them. Do, do you get a sense from the suit? How does this algorithm work? How do these incentives work? How do they encourage a landlord, say a develop, say a real estate company that has a bunch of apartment buildings that it manages, how do they incentivize them to keep an apartment open? Well, that's sort of what seems insidious or most insidious, according to the suit. This isn't just a recommendation like, I don't know what, a Yelp recommendation or a Priceline recommendation. The AG is saying that landlords are feeding data into this program about vacancies, about prices, and the algorithm is doing some kind of math <laughs> to uh, to this data to determine the maximum profit that can be extracted from these assets. And of course, they're not just assets, they're homes that people should be living in and not living in tents and encampments. But the algorithm obviously doesn't care about that. It's just there to extract data and spit out the highest price a place can be rented for. You, you mentioned how this kind of litigation is happening in places across the country. It's a big software program. Have any of these led to results, punishments, have any of them actually concluded in the legal system? I'm not sure I, ab- about that. Uh, I think that you know these matters are still unfolding. So what happens now? Like When does this go to court? So we have to see how this plays out. Again, RealPage is being sort of besieged in many legal fora over this practice. So we have to see how the company responds. The AG has sued a lot of people in recent years. Many have settled. I'm reminded of, I believe, landlords that were recently sued for discriminating against voucher holders. So, you know, the AG has shown that this litigation can be effective, can result in big settlements. I'm also reminded of a recent suit where I believe it was Pepco was sued over pollution of the uh, Anacostia River. Right. So, yeah, we we just have to see um, how the defendant, in this case, RealPage, responds. Yeah, I mean, the very first thing you said was the ever busy AG. And that, that made me chuckle because I do feel like we are constantly seeing reports of a new lawsuit that the attorney general is kicking off. But we so rarely hear what happens at the end of it all. So, um, yeah, eager to see what happens and follow your reporting on this. Everybody knows that getting that perfect Mother's Day gift is basically impossible, but we promise mom will love this one. The Capitol Hill Restoration Society House and Garden Tour is back this Mother's Day weekend on May 11th and May 12th. Tour nine elaborate homes and gardens and three historic buildings on Capitol Hill that you can't normally enter. 
And if you can't make it, check out the Capitol Hill Restoration Society's other events like walking tours and monthly preservation cafes. You can buy tickets for the Mother's Day House and Garden Tour on Eventbrite. And be sure to follow CHRS on Facebook and Instagram at Capitol Hill Restoration DC. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. All right, so last week we talked about the relocation of the FBI building. You know that beautiful, brutalist structure on Pennsylvania Avenue. Oh, so um, beautiful. So beautiful. There's been a big debate over the last couple of years. Where should they go? It's like, Mar it's old school in D.C. It's Maryland against Virginia. D.C. not playing a role, just like it used to be. Last week, the uh, government announced the, that uh, Maryland had won, that the FBI headquarters would be built in Greenbelt, Maryland, at the end of the Green Line in Prince George's County. This is in keeping with the Biden administration's talk about equity. Prince George's County is a county that has been uh, economically not as robust as most of the other counties. No sooner had we begun talking about this than it turned out this process that led to the selection of Greenbelt has become pretty controversial. The director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, sent an internal email saying, you know, he thought the process had been screwed up, that the three-person panel comprised of people from the FBI and from the General Services Administration, which is like the federal government's real estate agency, had unanimously wanted this site in Springfield, Virginia, which is closer to the FBI's training facility in Quantico, and were overruled by an official of the GSA. That official, he added, used to work at Metro as the head real estate official for Metro. And the new headquarters in Greenbelt is going to take advantage of proximity to the Metro station and Metro's real estate. Uh, the FBI director insinuated, but didn't say, that there was something uh, nefarious going on here, that this official had pulled punches on behalf of her former employer. She has since left the GSA and is now the, the new economic development chief for DC Mayor Bowser. So there's a kind of, there's a sort of local piece of this, but there's also this big national thing because now the Virginia delegation in Congress and bipartisanly has stood up and said, we think this process was unfair and needs to be revisited. The Maryland side, needless to say, think it was uh, perfectly fair and needs to not be revisited. It's gotten into a whole thing. And I have to say, like, I, I suspect more, a lot more FBI folks live in Virginia than Maryland. If you are commuting to their current spot at Pennsylvania Avenue, Virginia is probably an easier place to commute from. There's a whole lot of people. I mean, just think about your own offices. There's a whole lot of people who have got the very complicated mornings of dropping kids off here and picking things up there. And a move to a new place, whether it's in Springfield, Virginia or Greenbelt, Maryland, is going to screw up your perfectly calibrated domestic arrangements. And that's actually like, like a thing I really emphasize with. That said, that's, that shouldn't be the basis of anybody making decisions about federal real estate and offices. For sure. I, I mean, and the thing that's really crazy about this is that 
this has been a years long debate. You know, they've been going back and forth for so long. And the fact that they finally made a decision last week was huge. And now with this formal investigation, I mean, like, are we reopening this conversation? Are we just going to delay this move further? And like, I, I just I don't understand what the next steps here are. Right. And I think that that the conversation about it is now sort of opened up already of like, well, there's people in Prince George's County saying, you know, are we sure it's really going to bring that much like great economic benefit? I mean, there is a bunch of federal stuff like the Goddard Space Center and whatnot in Prince George's County. And it's not like the employees of these places are single handedly pumping vibrancy into the county economy. And do we really assume that the feds who that the G-men at the FBI headquarters <laughs> are going to be stepping out to the dry cleaner or spending big on lunch in ways that create jobs. I don't know. Within the agency, there's also this thing of like, look, they want to be that they work for the Justice Department. The Justice Department is just off the mall, too. And in a bureaucracy, people want to be close to the seat of power, to the headquarters. And so being an hour away, whether it's an hour into Virginia or an hour into Maryland, is something that a lot of people don't much like. Uh, you want to be able to go take that meeting and make sure you don't get forgotten at budget time. Mm -hmm. That is a good point. But that's not even a consideration here, is it? Like DC's out. It's, it's between Maryland and Virginia regardless. That is right. That's right. So anyway, they're calling for an investigation. And it's a, it's a weird thing. It cuts a lot of ways because we've also it's also taken place against a backdrop of a, a Republican Party in Congress that has become sort of militantly anti-FBI and where there are these ideas that the FBI is the deep state that was conspiring against Trump. So at some point, they are still going to have to get the Congress to cough up money to actually move and actually construct the new facility. And there was already, I suspect, an incentive for people to like mug for the cameras by saying, I'm not, you know, not a penny for these deep staters. And this sort of adds another wrinkle that makes it makes me wonder like maybe this this old brutalist building that everyone hates is going to be in use for a while. No, don't say that. I mean like as as a local like the thing that matters to us most is getting them out and repurposing <laughs> that building. Like just, just get out, get out. And it is like a you know it's because a that's an agency with certain security needs as well as because of the nature of the architecture. You know, downtown gallery place is still pretty vibrant. And then you go and you hit that building and there's just nothing, you know, I mean, maybe the folks who work in there are walking a couple extra blocks and, and hitting the Fuddruckers in gallery place, but their own building certainly isn't like crackling with the life uh, for the city around it. No. And I mean, as Tristan Navarro told us in the episode we did on this, that building is falling apart. So no one wants to be there. David, thanks for chatting with me. So like you and I both have cars in the DC metro area and sometimes they're great, but sometimes they can be a hassle. And I heard you had car issues, man. Yes, my car like me is old and falling apart. <laughs> and so I wanted to get it fixed. But one of the truly unpleasant tasks I find in the world is getting your car fixed because you have to take it usually somewhere extremely distant, extremely inconvenient, arrange some alternate form of transportation. And so I heard about Rota, Rota.com. And I went on the Rota.com website and they will come and pick your car up, take it from you, and then do the work and bring it back to you. And so I made an appointment on Roto, which was easy as pie, beautiful user interface um, for the work that I wanted done. 
the valet showed up at around 10 o'clock at my house as exactly on time. Very easy. Just handed him my keys. He drove off with my car. About an hour later, April called me. She said, here are some things that we found with your car in addition to what you want to do. She sent me videos that Michael... Wait, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a car nerd, so I like want to know the nitty gritty of what's happening because I, I don't know stuff. A million percent. They sent me this video. There was a particular belt that was had broken and they sent me a video of it and they sent me a list of sort of here are the things that were recommended. Here are the things that seemed urgent to fix and I could choose what I wanted to fix and sent that back to them, which took me like three minutes. Michael, the technician, fixed it. They then texted me and said, oh, your car's on the way back. My car was back in front of my house at 2.30. I'd given it to them at 10. It was back in front of my house that afternoon. Also, note, the valet did a much better job parking in front of my house than I do. (laughs) Don't they always? So much closer to the curb. And it was an incredibly pleasant, super easy experience. And they were very trustworthy. They were clear about what they were going to fix. And it was incredibly convenient. Yeah. So this like seems like a dream. Uh, I have used them before, but it's been a bit. Would you use them again for something like this? I would use Rhoda again in a second. I would use Rhoda. And they have a discount for us too, for CityCast listeners. So if you go to Rhoda.com, they have the discount code CityCast20 and you get 20% off. Sweet. Uh, Thoughts, David, thank you so much for talking with me. Again, CityCast listeners, you get 20% off off any Rhoda service up to $100 using the code CityCast20. So go to Rhoda.com. That's R-O-D-A.com to book your appointment. All right. So just a couple more blocks from there, walking distance at lunchtime, if you are so inclined, (laughs) is the National Gallery. And Justin, you had your byline on a story this week about a man who was arrested on Tuesday for writing the words, honor them in red paint under the St. Gaudens sculpture of the Massachusetts 54th. Yes, honor them, a, a, a protester from the group Declare Emergency. So wait, what, what's the emergency that they want to declare and, and how are we to honor them? The emergency is climate change. We've seen a lot of similar protests like this around the world, but also in D.C. This was the third one that I counted from Declare Emergency this year. These folks want President Biden to declare a climate emergency, and they've staged these kind of performative uh, events where they you know, write something on a famous statue in a, a museum. In this case, they wrote honor them, meaning honor the members or the memory of the members of the Massachusetts 54th, which is one of the first Civil War regiments of African-Americans enlisted in the North. They believe that that we have to honor them by declaring this emergency, which affects largely poor people and people of color around the world. This feels like a little bit of a stretch, no? I mean, like the connection between the climate emergency and this particular sculpture. Is that just me? I don't want to opine on, you know, whether there should or shouldn't be a a climate emergency declared. (laughs) I will say, though, that whether they're sort of notional or not or connected clearly to the alleged emergency, these events draw attention in ways that, um, you know, other actions just just don't. We've covered many of them over the years. I remember there was a event where somebody put a giant boat in the middle of 16th Street at 16th and K. And I think the implication at the time was that seas were rising. And so here's this boat and we're chained to the boat and you have to remove us and deal with us. This got a lot of coverage and a lot of attention mm-hmm. that I feel like, you know, a, a normal protest or petition or letter writing campaign does not. So 
maybe the connection that you're seeking is not what uh, is not important even to those involved. They just want press coverage. That's a fair point. So is that the theory of change that that you do things that disrupt regular life, vandalize regular life, that brings attention to an issue that doesn't get enough attention in their opinion, and that is inherently good, even if the the thing that gets done is probably not going to make people feel especially warmly towards this organization. I mean, I'd have to crack open my history books, but I feel like, you know, <laughs> isn't this what a sit-in was in, you know, 1960-whatever? Well, right, except that in, that in those cases, like, Walgreens, like, was in fact the bad actor. They were refusing service at their places. The National Gallery, as best I can tell, is not a, a, full of, a building full of people making climate policy. I take your point, but maybe, you know, in the age of spectacle, protesters need to create a spectacle and, you know, make some kind of thin connection to the actual issue that they're seeking to change. And, and that's enough. But I would leave that to the philosophers, particularly the postmodern ones, <laughs> to get in on that uh, conversation. You know, I think this is like leaving aside the, the specifics of climate change and of this piece of vandalism. And unlike a couple of the other things around the world, this was a case where they, he did not vandalize the work of art. He wrote this in red and like blood red uh, paint on the wall next to it, a wall that can presumably be cleaned <laughs> quickly. But this this idea, it's a, it's a thing that you know anyone who lives in a city like Washington has to deal with all the time, which is uh, one theory of why you have a protest is you inconvenience lots of people in the name of bringing attention to something that is worthy of attention. And, you know, some of those people who are inconvenienced presumably will be like rushing to the hospital to visit their ailing mother or something where they're like really going to be displeased that a like giant boat at 16th and K has uh, interrupted their day. And people organizing the protests have deemed it, you know, worth it to like, yes, we are causing inconvenience and in some cases pain, but it's it's worth it for for the good effects of this. I think when it comes to climate emergency specifically, a lot of times the point they're trying to make is like when this kicks off, like when we start to feel the real effects of climate change in this city, that inconvenience is going to be far greater than this ship in the middle of 16th and K. So like, let's pay attention now to avoid that future pain later, hopefully. Justin, do you know if the spate of things going to lead to any changes at the National Gallery itself in terms of like what well, the great thing about DC is, is you can walk in without paying any money and see some amazing pieces of art. They didn't really speak to that. They just wanted, you know, everyone to know there was an arrest, that this was vandalism. And they, of course, disapproved of it in a way that you seem to disapprove of it, which I find interesting because I think of you as kind of a combative up and atom kind of uh, <laughs> activist journalist. I don't disapprove of it, but I just I think like, look, being um, being a protester means being a pain in the ass. Right. And, and sometimes you are a pain in the ass of the bad guys. Right. Which is like a pretty easy call. Sometimes it means being a pain in the ass of the general population who might be just like not thinking about your issues. And in that case, I just think you have to sort of have a theory of like, is my being a pain in the ass to these people worth it? Is it making it more likely to achieve what I want to achieve or is it making it less likely to achieve what I want to achieve? And I think in this case, that's like a closer call. And I'm not sure that this act of vandalism is going to get you there. And in the abstract, I think, you know, inconveniencing people is... Uh, you know, you just have to weigh the cost and benefit. Like, that's why I keep asking, like, what's the theory here? Because I think that's really, really the only way to analyze it. I guess I would posit that the theory is just to get attention. I, I feel like we've seen so many climate protests 
in the past generation and Gen Z is coming of age and they're saying, well, we've done all this stuff and nothing's changed and nothing's going to change. You know, Biden's not going to declare an emergency. It doesn't appear. So maybe the only thing left is just to make noise. And this seems a, a very effective way of making noise. We write about this every time it, it happens. I think it's you do it to get attention for something you're not getting enough attention for. I just was struck by the fact that it was like a white guy and it was a a statue of African-Americans. That picture is not necessarily a great optic in a plurality black city. Would it have been different if it had been next to like a impressionist painting or something? I don't know. But I think that's the question is like, you know, you're going to alienate some people, you're going to raise the consciousness of some people. And is the math in your favor? It's an interesting question. We did a whole episode on this. <laughs> Justin, awesome to have you here, man. Thanks so much. It's always great to catch up, sir. And Priyanka, I will see you soon. Absolutely. And listener, don't go anywhere. In just a second, we've got a segment sponsored by real estate service Urban Pace. CityCast CEO David Plotz is chatting with the project manager of Pasha Homes about exciting things to do on Kennedy Street Northwest and how you could find yourself living there. Hi there, I'm David Plotz, the CEO of CityCast. I'm here today with Virat Beardal, who's the project manager for Pasha Homes in Upper Northwest DC. Virat, welcome to CityCast DC. Hi, David. Hi, thank you. Virat, Pasha Homes, the condo building you're developing on Kendi Street Northwest, is at the intersection of a few different neighborhoods. It's at Brightwood Park and Fort Totten and Manor Park, all very cool neighborhoods. And there's a lot of great stuff within walking distance. What is your favorite spot? Um, I would say my favorite spot would be the coffee shop right down the street, La Coupe. It's a really cozy place and a friendly place. But also there's a CVS right like two minutes away from us. That's also really useful. That is super useful. And that coffee shop is very cute. I know it. It's great. Yeah. So the Pasha Homes are one and two bedroom condos. If you had to pick your favorite things about these homes that you've just built, what would your favorite things be? We actually have really high quality appliances and high quality uh, flooring. Specifically in the bathrooms, we use the Carrara marble and Carrara mosaics on the shower walls as well. And on the counters, we use quartz. Also, we have these tall windows from Anderson, which is great. It gets the sunlight all over the place. Yes. you Listeners, you can't see this, but I, I see Barat and his got a window behind him and the light is streaming in. The afternoon light is streaming in behind him. Yeah, all of this comes with three-year warranties. It covers everything that it's in the units. So your one bedroom start at 259 and your two bedrooms at 449,000, which are incredibly competitive prices for DC these days. Yeah, we, we did our best to make it affordable, but also stay good quality. And that's the best price that we could come up with. And I think it's it's a really good price. Bharat, I know people are anxious about buying in this housing market with the high interest rates. And it sounds like you're offering a really special deal, some special help for your buyers. What is it? Yeah, basically, it's going to be $10,000 closing um, settlement. $10,000? $10,000? Yes. Yeah, we wanted to help out potential uh, buyers. As you, as you mentioned, it's like rates are getting really high, the interest rates. So we wanted to find a way to help help people, you know. 
So when they settle, they get $10,000 to help them pay for whatever it is they want to pay for. Yes, exactly. So Bharat, before you go, where can people learn more about Pasha Homes? Yeah, we actually have a website, um, pashadc.com. And then if people have specific questions, they can ask us from there and we can uh, respond to them as soon as possible. Bharat Berdal, thank you for joining us on CityCast DC. Thank you, Davis, for having me. Again, check out PashaDC.com to learn more about Pasha Homes in Northwest. We will have a link for you in our show notes, too, so you're just a click away. Thanks for listening. And that's all for today here on CityCast DC. If you want to learn more about Pasha Homes, check out our show notes. All the details are there. Our executive producer is Priyanka Tilbe. Our producers are Julia Karen and Elizabeth Kama. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. Our production assistant is Susanna Brown. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, think about scrawling it on the wall of a prominent art gallery. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye.